Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Book of Abraham, Apologetics, Part 3, or as I like to call it, Egyptologist Apologists. This time, it's personal. Once again, I have with me on the show, Bill Real. How are you doing, Bill Real? I am exceptional, RFM. Uh, I've actually been looking forward to this for several weeks. Uh, we've been talking to, you know, when we left off in episode two on the Book of Abraham, we said, hey, if the, if the crowd wants a part three, we'll do it. And uh, several people reached out and said, we've got to have a part three. So you and I started working behind the scenes to put some thoughts and ideas together. There's plenty here. Um, and so I'm just excited to, to sit down and go back at this because I think there's still a lot to cover. Yes, giving a brief overview of what we'll be covering tonight is that no less an authority than Brian Hauglid, who we talked about before in the prior two podcasts, who is very much an expert in the Book of Abraham, in the underlying documents related to the Book of Abraham produced by Joseph Smith and his scribes, and also with the Joseph Smith papers, he's done a lot of work. So he is definitely an expert in this area. And he was kind enough at your request to actually listen to parts one and parts two of our podcast, and he gave some feedback in writing, which you'll be sharing with the audience, because we made some mistakes along the way, and we'll be correcting those. For the record, I think it's fair to say that they're mostly superficial and cosmetic mistakes. It doesn't affect at all the substance of the argument, but we want to be correct and as correct as possible, and we're just thrilled, or at least I am, that Brian Hauglid was willing to listen to the podcast and give us some very, very expert feedback. So that'll be the very first part of the podcast tonight. The second part is where we're actually going to do what we intended to do when we started this entire series, which was address the article that was written by Carrie Muelstein, which appeared in the December issue of the Enzyme. That's December of 2018, related to the Book of Abraham, called the Book of Abraham, Revelation, and you will go through that article, and I'm really excited about it because I've been doing a lot more research in the intervening weeks since we finished part two, and I think that what we're going to be able to do tonight is to show clearly the game that Carrie Muelstein and John Gee, the two LDS Egyptologists, are playing when it comes to their writings and their speeches in support of the Book of Abraham. And we'll go into more detail about that later. But first, let's get to the comments from Brian Hauglid, shall we? Let's do it. And it's been fun. It's been fun to uh, have access to Brian, uh, especially in this moment. I mean, we we shared in part uh, one, I think we maybe reiterated it in part two as well, uh, Brian's recent statement where he's expressing like, look, I've had to move quite a bit on this. I don't really accept the apologetics of Guy and Molstein anymore. Um, I, I side a lot with what uh, Dan Vogel said in his videos. And so it's been fun behind the scenes to reach out to Brian and to say, hey, would you mind listening? Here's, here's what we've done. Would you please openly criticize and give us, give us feedback on what we did right, what we did wrong? And so these are the notes that Brian's given me permission uh, to share. And, uh, and I, I, I think this adds quite a bit to, uh, to the conversation for the listener who's trying to be well-rounded and under, understanding of the issue of the book of Abraham. So with that, 
I asked Brian why the 1842 Nauvoo dating of Abraham uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through chapter 5, verse 21 uh, is important for the discussion. In other words, Brian made a comment in his post, uh, his Facebook comment on Dan Vogel's post. He made uh, the comment that he now believed the data imposes that part of the book of Abraham was translated in Kirtland uh, up to chapter 2, verse 18, and then verse 19 through the end was done in Nauvoo, and why that is an important point to make and to distinguish. And he, his response is, the apologetic argument has been that the book of Abraham we have, and perhaps much more, was translated by the end of July, or at least by the end of 1835. However, Joseph Smith's journal clearly states that translation took place on March 8th and 9th, 1842. Uh, some apologists say that Smith only revised the book of Abraham even though the word translate was specifically used. We also have an unpublished 1842 editorial and a March 9th letter that states that Joseph Smith was translating. Also, Sexius Hebrew is prominent in Abraham 3 through 5, Abraham chapter 3 through chapter 5. The exact part translated in 1842, it's not important that it's not in, that important by itself but it totally counters bad apologetics. So what, what Brian is saying here is that some of the argument from apologists is to pick out some of these uh, ancient connections that they see in the later portions of the book of Abraham. But because Joseph by 1842 is learning Hebrew himself and has access to the books that we talked about before, Book of Josephus, uh, Book of Jasher, that when we place the translation in 1842, we have to grant a lot more room for Joseph Smith to have had these connections in his contemporary material. And so that's the reason why the 1842 dating uh, is important. And I hope this isn't too dry for people. I think it's Joshua Satius. I've heard it pronounced that way. I'm not sure. It's S-E-I-X-A-S is how his last name is spelled. But this is the Jew who was hired, or at least used, retained, I believe he was hired by Joseph Smith to teach Hebrew at the school of the prophets that Joseph Smith set up in Kirtland, Ohio in 1835. So Joseph Smith was learning Hebrew after 1835 and in 1836, I think, is mainly when his studies of Hebrew were ongoing with Joshua Satius. So here's a concrete example, okay? Apparently the apologists want the entire book of Abraham to be done prior to Joseph Smith studying Hebrew with Joshua Satius so that subsequent insertions of authentic Hebrew material in the book of Abraham become more amazing and more remarkable. If it's done by 1835, before Joseph Smith knows Hebrew, how do you account for that? Whereas if it's actually done in 1842, six years after Joseph Smith started his study of Hebrew with Joshua Satius, it becomes readily accountable from Joseph Smith's knowledge of Hebrew by Joshua Satius. Example, Carrie Muelstein in a video that is available on YouTube, 
talks about one of the evidences of the authenticity of the book of Abraham being Joseph Smith's use of the word kolob to describe the planet or the star near which God dwells. And kolob, amazingly enough, Bill, in Hebrew means center. Well, I'm not exactly sure what that means unless it's the center of the universe. I think that's what he's driving at. He doesn't actually make his conclusion, but he uses that as an evidence for the book of Abraham. So that becomes an evidence only if, and that's of course in chapter three, after the part that you're talking about, right? That only becomes important for the book of Abraham if it was completely translated by 1835, and if it's actually in 1842, it's a meh. Well, Joseph Smith is just using his knowledge of Hebrew in order to inform his translation of the book of Abraham, much as he used his knowledge of Hebrew to talk about the first sentence in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when he was giving the King Follett discourse in 1844. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Okay. Uh, Great. The next thing I asked about was the strength of Abraham 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and 14, the strength of those in putting down a catalyst theory and a missing scroll theory. You and I in parts 1 and 2 had really spoken to this idea that the real stumbling block uh, is Abraham 1, 12 and 14. And so I wanted to see what Brian's thoughts were. Uh, especially after his commentary on Vogel's post. And can I just reiterate for the audience, Bill, that Abraham 1 verses uh, 12 through 14 is the language in the book of Abraham that refers the reader back to facsimile number one as being a drawing that represents the scene that Abraham is describing with the altar and with the gods in front of it. Yeah, and it's at the commencement of the characters which make up the text of the book of Abraham. Right. Go ahead, please. Sorry. No, no problem. Uh, so Brian says, Abraham 1, 12, and 14 is a real stumbling block to the missing papyrus and catalyst theories. There's more evidence than that that says Joseph Smith believed the book of Abraham was on the papyri right after facsimile 1. And yes, Joseph Smith believed that. And since we know the book of Abraham is not on the papyri that follows facsimile 1, you have to make a shift to, at best, a catalyst theory that has to make lots of allowances. Uh, But it also leaves on the table inspired fiction uh, or even pure deception. Uh, I also asked him on if there were documents still being withheld. Uh, in other words, is there things in the uh, granite vault in Salt Lake City at the church office building or otherwise that the church is holding back? Uh, his response is, there's no documents being held back. The data is out there. I asked him on how much of the Egyptian alphabet and grammar ties to the book of Abraham. He says, I wouldn't say a significant amount of Abraham material is in the 1835 Egyptian alphabet and grammar. You can find some of chapter one concerning the discovery of Egypt underwater and some astronomical material related to the explanations to facsimiles too. I think that's important because we had, when we discussed it, I think inadvertently given the impression that all of the book of Abraham was represented in the Joseph Smith papers, the Abraham papers, and the translation paperwork that is in the church archives with the Joseph Smith Papers Project. And that was actually overstating the case a bit. There is a substantial portion of material from the Book of Abraham that is represented there that's being translated from the Egyptian characters that are on the Joseph Smith papyri, but not the entire Book of Abraham. 
Uh, he followed that up by inserting a correction. You and I had talked in episodes one and two, and there was a mention that none of this uh, Egyptian alphabet and grammar was in Joseph Smith's handwriting. And he actually says, yes, some of it is. The Egyptian alphabet and grammar, uh, he said, doesn't really have any documents in Joseph's handwriting. However, one of the Egyptian alphabet documents is mostly in Joseph Smith's handwriting with some in Oliver Cowdery's handwriting. And, and I think this is a big deal, RFM, because what we were doing, by saying that none of it's in Joseph's handwriting, you make allowance for the apologist to say, look, Joseph's not translating the papyri directly. It's the scribes who are going back in after the fact, and they're trying to make the connection between the papyri and the book of Abraham. Well, once you place some of this in Joseph Smith's own handwriting, that becomes more difficult to do. Right. The apologist I've heard is that Joseph Smith is nowhere around, and it's just his scribes on a lark getting together and trying to retrofit and reverse engineer the book of Abraham into these Egyptian hieroglyphs from the papyrus. But once you have Joseph Smith's own handwriting as part of the collection, you know that that's not the case. He was present. He was involved. You can't just shunt this off onto his scribes doing something on their own. This was part of the translation that Joseph Smith himself was involved in. Yeah. And uh, we asked, you know, Brian wanted, I asked Brian to give a synopsis of the documents so that the listeners could understand these different pieces from a uh, an expert's point of view from somebody who's working with these things and looking at them and understands them intimately. The Kirtland Egyptian papers, this is Brian's words, the Kirtland Egyptian papers are more accurately the Abraham Egyptian papers because some of the docs are from the Nauvoo period, consist of two basic types of documents. First, the Abraham papers. One, these fall into three separate 1835 Kirtland Abraham papers that contain heretic characters from the Joseph Smith Papyri 11, the fragment once attached to facsimile 1 vignette, in the left margin with Abraham text to the right. The Abraham manuscripts cover roughly the same amount of text corresponding to Abraham 1.1 to chapter 2, verse 18, with the same heretic characters taken sequentially, from the first three lines of the Joseph Smith Papyri 11. These have been called Book of Abraham Translation Papers. Now, these are the ones we talked about, RFM, because that's I want to make sure that the listener understands uh, that. The, this is the ones with the character to the left, and then the portion of the Book of Abraham that that translates to on the right, uh, and then the following character in the papyri on the left, and then the following translation of the Book of Abraham on the right. It is a significant document. It really deeply points us to Joseph Smith and his scribes believing they're doing some type of literal translation. Right, and they're definitely translating what we have as the Book of Abraham from the papyri that was discovered in the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art in 1967 and that we have today. It is a death blow to the missing papyrus or missing scroll theory. Joseph Smith was translating the papyri that was discovered, not some missing portion. Yeah, it's almost as if if Heavenly Father wanted us to believe in the book of Abraham, he could have left that thing in the Chicago Museum to burn. It's almost as if Heavenly Father, through a tender mercy, allowed that thing to come forward so that we could figure it out. 
Well, can you imagine? And yes, that's very funny. I'm sorry, I'm smiling. You can't see me smiling. But can you imagine the feelings of the church when this was discovered and their anticipation that this was going to finally prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God? Because when we translate these papyri that have been discovered, it's going to be the book of Abraham. And then imagine the disappointment when it was discovered that the papyri was anything but the book of Abraham. It was almost like... (laughs) And ever since then, since 1967, right? Book of Abraham, apologetics, has been an extended and prolonged effort to explain why it is that it doesn't make any difference that the Egyptian papyrus that was discovered does not translate into the book of Abraham. It has been a 50-year game of catch-up in which thousands of pages have been written on tangential and secondary issues in order to try and make up for the fact that the book of Abraham does not match the papyri from which Joseph Smith claimed to translate it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, as you've pointed out over and over again, um, the thing that should match the other thing doesn't. And that's the entire problem. Like, if this document simply did translate to what Joseph said it translated to, the problem, there is no problem. It's all uh, faith-promoting, and everybody lines up to get baptized in the church. The problem is it doesn't match, uh, which you've, again, nailed, I think, over and over again. I think it's so crucial that everything, what makes all the machinations, what makes this a Rube Goldberg machine from a faithful perspective is that what was supposed to match didn't. Brian continues. He says, and this is still regarding the Abraham papers. Number two, there are several more Abraham manuscripts from the Nauvoo period, early 1842. Another Abraham document that contains the same text of the 1835 docs, uh, Abraham 1.1 to 218, but without the characters in the left margin. I see this one as the Times and Seasons Printer's Manuscript. Facsimile 1 explanation is also on the back of one of the pages of this Abraham document. Another Nauvoo document contains the explanations to facsimiles 2. Another contains a few verses of Abraham 3. I, I think that's important only because it connects the translation of facsimile 1 to the actual translation of the characters that become the book of Abraham. Um, and, and I think it just it just compels us to be more painted into a corner when we're trying to explain these things. The second thing is the Egyptian papers. One, three 1835 Egyptian alphabet papers that are mostly the same. Significantly, one of these is in the handwriting of Joseph Smith and a little from Oliver Cowdery. Almost all of the characters in these manuscripts come from the hieroglyphs surrounding facsimile one vignette. Two characters come from the Joseph Smith papyri 11 and were placed on one of the 1835 Abraham manuscripts by W.W. Phelps. And I would just say, for those who want to know what these things look like, what they say, what's there, what's going on, obviously uh, the Joseph Smith Papers Project has made a book with all of these in them. would just recommend that people go out and get the book to, if they want to have those uh, access to those things. The, uh, the second one in the Egyptian Papers one grammar book that basically expands on the three Egyptian alphabet papers 
and incorporates the characters and definitions into a five-degree system. This system generally adds more meaning and depth as you move up the degrees. So the fifth-degree definitions are generally much longer than the lesser degrees. Interestingly, at the top of two of the three Abraham manuscripts is written, uh, quote, sign of the fifth degree in the second part, unquote. The longer paragraphs from the book of Abraham fit with the fifth degree idea. This probably means the Abraham papers were created with the Egyptian degree system in mind. So again, it just ties Joseph Smith more directly to a literal translation as he takes these characters uh, off the papyri and continues to assign more and more meaning to them and begins to get more and more extravagant uh, in what those meanings are. And if I could just break in there for just a second, I think we touched on this in a prior episode, but it's important to note that this method of trying to interpret Egyptian was not Joseph Smith's idea. He did not come up with this on his own. This is the kind of thing that other people were trying to do in an age when Egyptian was not able to be translated, they were coming up with extravagant, lengthy, paragraph-long interpretations of single characters. When we know now that a single character might mean one word or even half of a word, it's not an entire paragraph. But what Joseph Smith was doing is what was common in his culture at the time to come up with these extravagant, lengthy interpretations of one single character. Number three in this is the Egyptian papers do not contain a ton of exact quotes from the book of Abraham, but you can see portions of the book of Abraham more conceptually in the Egyptian papers. This probably means the Egyptian papers precede the Abraham papers in creation. So simply noting that what we're finding tells us at least what's the most reasonable way to place these in order of when they were created. Um, we had mentioned, or at least I had mentioned in, I think, episode two, that Claus Bear was an anti-Mormon. Brian notes that apologists do not consider Claus Bear an anti-Mormon. He was actually friends with Nibley. Of course, they did not see eye to eye on the origins of the book of Abraham. Um, and so essentially, as a non-believer, all too often in Mormonism, we throw that label of anti-Mormon out and, uh, and I overreached there in that episode. And that's okay, Bill. And actually, I knew that at the time you said it, but I didn't want to bother by correcting you. And uh, so that's my bad. Now, I only say that, right? I only say that because I'm going to be lining up to take a spanking here from Brian Hauglid in a second on a mistake I made. Perfect. No big deal. How, so um, how we know that Joseph was translating from the papyri we have Brian says, we know that Joseph Smith was translating from Joseph Smith Papers 11 because of the 1835 Abraham manuscripts, not the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. Um, and, so, and so Brian's just pointing to where the strength of the argument lays. Um, I don't know, even in my own mind, RFM, I'm not no, I don't know that I know the difference between the Egyptian alphabet and grammar, I'd want to see one, I guess, set aside the other to see what they both look like. Um, but he's just making note that the 1835 Abraham manuscripts are much a much stronger arrow pointing at Joseph translating the papyri than the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. Right. And here I think that Brian Hauglid is correcting nomenclature 
where we had used maybe incorrect nomenclature by describing one set of papers when we were actually meaning a different set of papers. So as I say, these are cosmetic changes. They're important to Brian Hauglid and they're important to be accurate. I always want to be as accurate as I possibly can, but really these are just differences in nomenclature. We use the wrong name that the scholars use for one set of papers instead of the other, but the substance of the argument is correct. I asked Brian about the strength of Abraham 1, 12, and 14 in comparison to uh, the other pieces of evidence that point to Joseph imposing publicly that he's doing a a literal translation. And Brian says, all we have to know is that Abraham 1, 12 through 14 brings us back to the papyri and the Abraham manuscripts, not the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. So Brian's essentially saying, like, we've got to deal with Abraham 1, 12, and 14. We have to come up with, if we're going to be faithful, we have to come up with a faithful answer that deals with Abraham 1, 12, and 14. We can't ignore it. It's right there. It sits right in front of our face. I said, how much of the book of Abraham we can show connected to the papyri we have? Uh, He says, Joseph Smith only translated Abraham 1, 1 to 2, 18 using the characters from the papyri. We don't have evidence that he did the same thing with Abraham 2.19 through 5.21 in the Nauvoo period. Um, He says, we corrected that a bit at 57 minutes in on one of the episodes, but that he wanted to make it clearer. Uh, I I asked Brian about the catalyst theory and the missing papyri theories and what his thoughts were. He said, in addition to not liking the missing papyrus theory, he also sees the catalyst theory as problematic as well. Brian uh, made the point that Robert Rittner has conceded, at least in part, that Joseph Smith's interpretation of the four figures in uh, figure six, which means the four canopic jars, that they do represent the four corners of the earth. Uh, And Robert Rittner sees this as a lucky guess, but does admit that Joseph here does make a connection But again, just to remind the listeners that on the outside of that connection are what I would deem as dozens and dozens of complete misses. And as you pointed out, RFM, it's the entire idea, too, of not even connecting the canopic jars in the following facsimile to even know that you're looking at the same thing again. Right. When he says figure six, he's referring to facsimile to the hypocephalus in which the four sons of Horus appear as figure six. Now, they are also represented in figure one as the four sons of Horus, which are also used as the canopic jars in figure one. Just want to make sure that's clear. Perfect. And we did cover that in a prior episode and the fact that this was a marginal hit for Joseph Smith. And here Brian Hauglid is simply saying that Robert Rittner, who is a critic of the Book of Abraham and who's a world-renowned Egyptologist and actually a professor of John Gee and a mentor to John Gee, concedes that much as well, which I think is fair of him to do. Yeah, absolutely. And and we'll get into some of that later when we talk about how Gee responds to being asked about Rittner. The missing detail that Joseph used other documents to fill in missing sections of the facsimiles. Uh, The hypocephalus facsimile 2 was damaged when Joseph Smith acquired it. They had to take figure 3 from another papyri fragment, and they basically copied the head for figure 1 from the head of figure 2. Rittner notes this as well. Uh, he does correct us, saying that where, where we were calling it the Amherst Manuscript, it's actually called the Leiden Manuscript. Uh, this is the papyri scene where uh, 
Kerry Molstein says that it, the wording below it says that it's Abraham upon the couch, which is not true, that it is part of a love spell. Uh, he notes that the person on the beer is a woman, the person on the lion couch, essentially. Uh, Abraham's uh, name, though correctly is Abraham, is part of a love spell. The spell is written in uh, Greek and not Egyptian, which means it is of much later date than the uh, period from which Joseph Smith Papyri comes. Uh, and then just a last note that Joseph's access to other works, I had asked him about uh, Jasher and Josephus. Uh, he said there's now plenty of other texts besides Jasher available to Joseph Smith about Abraham being thrown into a fire, uh, including a Bible commentary from Adam Clark, for instance, which made the news recently because it was a huge component of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. But he says there's many, many more. Uh, and so that was the, the final point there. Okay, so I've got to line up for my whacking on that one, because I'm the one who said it was the Amherst papyri. And I think technically I said, if you go back and listen, I think it's the Amherst papyri. Well, the reason I went Amherst was because the Amherst papyri, actually Amherst papyri 63, is another papyri that's significant in LDS, Book of Abraham Apologetics. Actually, it's Book of Mormon Apologetics. I'm not going to go into why that is now, but that's why I went Amherst papyri, but it is actually the Leiden papyri. So I made that mistake. I'll own up to it. So that's the part where Brian has given us his critical feedback as he's evaluated episodes one and two. As you can see, none of that uh, hurts uh, any of the, essentially the conclusions or the directions and paths that we went down, I think, in part one and two. Uh, but I also, I mean, Brian has this uh, comment that's out there uh, on Dan Vogel's post that has raised a lot of uh, interest. And, uh, and I wanted to get his feedback on that. And so when I asked him about that, what he said was, This is a test. This station, WNYW, is conducting a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. The broadcasters of your area, in voluntary cooperation with federal, state, and local authorities, have developed this system to keep you informed in the event of an emergency. If this had been an actual emergency, the attention signal you just heard would have been followed by official information, news, or instructions. This concludes this test of the emergency broadcast system. And as you can imagine, RFM, like to, I found that extremely interesting, right? So let's set that aside. Now we want to go into uh, the Kerry Molstein article, which originally got us doing this entire thing. And I hope the listeners made it through all that. That was kind of dry, but I think Brian is just so smart and well-informed. And he made uh, the points of correction that I think were needed to make us accurate. But if we go into the enzyme, this is the, let's see, I think it's the December 2018 enzyme article, The Book of Abraham, Revelation and You, written by Kerry Molstein. I'm going to turn the time over to URFM. You've dove into this and some of the ideas that Kerry's sharing. And uh, I, I think on some level, there's a sense of misleading the listener who he knows is naive and ignorant to Egyptology. Uh, and I want you to kind of make, just kind of, I guess I want you to kind of cover that and to, to kind of, I guess, unveil that to us. Okay. Well, here goes, buckle your seatbelts, or maybe I should say, take your vitamins, take your vitamins. Here it comes. <laughs> anyway. So here's what I did. I went through 
this article, this Enzyme article by Kerry Muelstein, and it has been noted that he has two footnotes in which he cites to three articles in support of his assertions, and that all three of them are written by himself. And that much it has been noted, but I thought in order to really be prepared for this discussion that we're having, I need to go back and I need to pull up those articles and I need to read them myself to see what's going on here. So I have done that and we'll go through those. They're actually in front of me now. I've marked them up and I have made notes in them. And what I found out, let me just tell you what I found out and then we'll go through the article. What I found out is that Muelstein and Gee, who are the two Mormon apologists, Egyptologist apologists, for the book of Abraham, and both of whom want to maintain that the book of Abraham is an actual translation from an ancient, authentic Egyptian text. Both of them are playing a game, and the game is this. They are Egyptologists. They have to publish and present themselves among their Egyptologist colleagues as reputable Egyptologists who actually do the work, do the research, come to the conclusions that are rational based upon the research. And that's one part of their game. That part of the game, however, is not really supportive of the book of Abraham. So the other part of the game is this, is that when they're taking those same ideas and those same concepts and presenting them to a second audience, to a Mormon audience, to a Mormon lay audience, such as this article from the Enzyme from December of 2018, what they do is now they'll change the information and they will actually be deceptive in their use of the information in order to make the actual information from the research look like it supports and confirms the book of Abraham. So that's the game that they're playing and we'll give examples of that as we go along. I know it's a rather strong accusation to make but I expect to be able to prove it with at least three examples as we move forward. Ultimately, the game that they're playing is one that I think we all know people in our lives, and I certainly do, know at least one person in my life in particular who likes to tell one story to one group of people and tell a completely different story to another group of people and then try and keep those people, those two different groups of people, those two audiences, from talking with each other. Because if they talk to each other, they're going to find out that this person is telling different stories to different people, right? And then it becomes very difficult for the person who's telling the story to maintain credibility. Well, this is a game that Carrie Muelstein and John Gee are playing. They're telling one story to their Egyptian colleagues and a different story to the Mormon audience. And what they don't want to have happen is for the colleagues to find out what they're saying to the Mormons or the Mormons to find out what they're saying to the colleagues. But basically, if the colleagues find out what they're saying to the Mormons, and how what they're saying to the Mormons really is different from what they're saying to the colleagues, and what they're saying to the Mormons is in contradiction to the actual Egyptological evidence, then Carrie Muelstein and John Gee are going to be on the hot seat because now they're going to be looked at as people who are not credible Egyptologists by their own colleagues. They're going to be looked at as hacks who are simply using their Egyptological degree and training in order to support a faith claim and try and prove correct and true and authentic the book of Abraham when it seems very, very certain 
at least from an outside point of view, and certainly from a secular or non-Mormon Egyptological point of view, that it is not ancient. The book of Abraham is not ancient. No, as a crowd who invites others to study us, even as we study ourselves, and who speaks to the faithful every bit as much as to the detached, you'll have to be comfortable being oddballs in what you're going to speak to both groups. It will usually not be in the same documents, probably not with the same vocabulary, and seldom, I would guess, in the same venue. But both the believers and the merely curious need to be able to see you as a source for some of the answers to their questions, however different that source material may be. And yes, if after such a balancing act, theological warfare still comes, you'll have to be willing to take sides. So does that much make sense before we go on with the article? Okay, so actually, once again, before I go on with the article, here's a really clear-cut example of what Kerry Muelstein does, and it has to do with the Leiden papyrus, okay? Not the Amherst, the Leiden papyrus, which shows a figure on a lion couch who is attended by Anubis, and underneath it is written in Greek a series of names. And as has been noted, these names are part of a love spell for a woman to get a woman to fall in love with the man and there's a whole list of names, and one of them is Abraham. Because the Egyptians didn't just focus on their own religion and think that it had magical properties. They would go to other religions and other cultures and take names of significance in other cultures and bring them in and use those as if they had magical properties as well. And one of those names was Abraham. So that's why Abraham shows up in this list of names written in Greek underneath the figure on the lion couch. Now, as you say, the figure on the lion couch is obviously a woman. By the way, Fair Mormon recognizes that the figure on the lion couch is a woman. And yet the name Abraham appears in this list of names. We'll go to what Robert Rittner says about that here presently. But Carrie Muelstein knows all of this. And yet he insists on saying multiple times in multiple venues that what it says in Greek is that it is Abraham upon the lion couch. That that's actually what it says, that this papyrus identifies Abraham as the person on the lion couch. Liar! 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 Now, the papyrus, Leiden papyrus, does not say that. It absolutely, unequivocally, does not say that. But you can see why it is so tempting for Kerry Muelstein, because he's not looking at the evidence to see what it says. He knows what he wants it to say. And he really, really wants it to say that Abraham is upon the lion couch because then we would have an actual papyri that corresponded with what Joseph Smith says is in facsimile one in the book of Abraham, that it's Abraham upon this lion couch, even though Joseph Smith actually says it's upon the altar. It is a lion couch in the drawing. So Carey overstates the evidence, and he draws conclusions that the evidence does not support, and he actually draws conclusions which are in contradiction to the evidence. He does that to his Mormon audience in order to try and show the book of Abraham is true, but when he's caught doing it by Egyptologists, they lose respect for him because they can see what he's doing. I have a number of documents here, and you'll probably hear papers uh, rustling in the background. 
But one of the documents, and this is a document that everybody should read. Backing up a second, in 2014, the LDS Church put up on its official website a document under the Gospel Topics essay about the book of Abraham and dealing with the issues related to the book of Abraham. And we've quoted from it before in prior episodes in which they admit that the Joseph Smith papyri has nothing to do with the book of Abraham. So they make that much of a concession. What is important to note is that Robert Rittner, the world-renowned Egyptologist, wrote a response to that essay. And that is called Translation and History of the Book of Abraham. That's the name of the essay. And then there's a hyphen, and it's called A Response. And that's by Robert Rittner. You can find this on the internet. I'm going to quote from some parts of it. And and we'll be sure to link that in the footnotes of the episode as well. So for the listener, if you're listening along, you can go to mormondiscussionpodcast.org or radiofreemormon.org and uh, find the link there as well. Okay, and so here's the paragraph which he talks about the Leiden papyri. And when you know what he's talking about, by the way, this is very densely written. It's very scholarly uh, language. But here's what it's talking about. He says, The text in question, a Leiden, magical papyrus, in Demotic, Egyptian, and Greek, does include a picture of a mummy attended by Anubis, mentioned by name, on a lion funerary couch. And then he puts in parentheses, not an altar. So he wants to correct the record. No, it's not an altar. It's a funerary couch. But the text is a love compulsion spell. See, this is a love spell intended to force a woman to submit to a male's sexual lust, not a reflection of the book of Abraham. And now he talks about this list of words in which Abraham appears. As accompanying magical words of power, the speaker recites, and now I'm going to try and read these words, these names from different languages and different cultures, in addition to Abraham, Ijo. Oryx, Thambioto, Abraham, Oepi, and then there's a few more. And then he goes, Plano, Plano, Yeg, Sai, Bioth, etc. So he's trying to put this in context with the other words around it, the other names around it. And he says, the string of abracadabra words does include Abram, A-B-R-A-A-M, and this spelling has been corrected to Abraham in a recent edition. So it is Abraham that appears there. However, the name is just one of a string of magical names and no more relevant to the image, the image of the person on the lion couch, than Oryx Thambito or Planio Guy... I'm really sorry. It's really hard to read this. I don't know how to pronounce it or what language it is. It's P-L-A-N-O-Y-E-G-X-Y-B-Y-O-T-H. In other words, Abraham has nothing more to do with the couch or the figure on the couch than any of these other names. Moreover, he says, there is no intent here to represent a sacrifice. Okay, this is not a sacrifice on the Leiden papyri being represented. There is no intent here to present a sacrifice. Just Osiris tended by Anubis who are both invoked to inflame the libido of the female victim of the spell. In other words, both of their names and their entities are used as part of this love spell too. The body on the lion bed is certainly that of the deceased Osiris, not a threatened Abraham. So there he totally blows this apart and shows that when Carrie Muelstein is saying that the use of the word Abraham in this love spell is designating 
the person on the lion couch is being Abraham, that it means Abraham upon the lion couch, that he is totally off base and he's totally flying in the face of what modern Egyptologists understand it to mean. It feels, RFM, like Mormonism does this at every turn where it takes where it dismisses the things that point to it being either unhealthy or its truth claims being problematic. It deflects and dismisses away from those. Uh, for instance, research uh, is not the solution, as Elder Oaks just recently taught. But then what the other side of the coin is that it constantly finds these little, tiny, little glimpses of something that might possibly, if we make a hundred allowances, be connected and evidence that the church is true, and that we make these things way bigger than they are. Uh, if Carrie were to explain what is going on in the Leiden uh, manuscript, uh, if he were to explain that thoroughly, nobody's going to get excited. Nobody's going to see it as an evidence of anything other than by just by happenstance, the name Abraham, along with a bunch of other names, happens to be on this old document. And it comes way late anyway. Um, it, it just feels like we're always in Mormonism trying to find some glimpse of something that connects uh, to an evidence. And and we overreach so often that it, it just becomes, uh, uh-oh, here we go again. So you're saying, I got a chance. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! Exactly. One in a million, my friend. Yes, and Robert Rittner characterizes this in his second paragraph in his response, where he says, and this is once again about the essay, which relies heavily on articles written by Guy and Muelstein, not surprisingly. He says, not a single opposing scholar is mentioned by name in this essay. Yeah, they just point nor, to each other. Exactly. And he says, nor are there reasons for rejecting the book of Abraham. So no scholar who opposes it is mentioned by name, and their reasons for rejecting it are not mentioned by name and, or mentioned at all. In other words, if, these can, if, if the way he's framing this Leiden manuscript is accurate, then he should be able to point to other peer-reviewed commentary by Egyptologists on the Leiden manuscript. He can't, because no other Egyptologist is willing to go this far because it doesn't equal what Kerry Molstein says it equals. Right. And Robert Rittner goes on. He says, yet the LDS paper, that's the essay, yet the LDS paper attempts to engage in scholarly debate from a one-sided position repeatedly citing in the footnotes the same limited set of apologists who are primarily church employees at BYU in Provo. Yeah, who do you think wrote the LDS Gospel Topic essay? I'm, I'm saying Kerry Molstein because I'm almost certain that he's the, the main person behind it, and maybe, and maybe John Gee is part of that as well, but it seems like the entire Book of Abraham uh, Gospel Topic essay is written from that perspective, making very little room for the full story. Yes, exactly. And so if we go on now with the um, Enzyme article, what I've done now is I've given one example of how Kerry Muelstein will try and present one face to his colleagues and yet another face to 
Mormons on this issue of the Leiden papyrus and Abraham meaning that Abraham is the figure identified on the couch. That's one thing he does. Now, there's two more examples that he now gives in his article for the enzyme. He doesn't mention the Leiden papyrus in the enzyme. He goes with two other things that are even more remote as far as evidence is for the book of Abraham. And the first one is human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. And the second one has to do with the interest of ancient Egyptians in the name Abraham and stories about Abraham. So let me read this from the article. I'm not going to read the entire Ensign article, but he says this. Joseph Smith tells us that facsimile one in the book of Abraham depicts a priest of Egypt attempting to sacrifice Abraham. For some, a problem has arisen because Egyptologists long taught that the Egyptians did not engage in human sacrifice. Okay, here's what you need to know there. They still teach that because that is still the scholarly consensus among Egyptologists. The Egyptians did not engage in human sacrifice. Then he goes on, as a graduate student in Egyptology, I believed all the academic publications that said this and I confidently taught it. Then I learned, then I learned of some archaeological remains in an Egyptian fort that seemed to be an example of human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. As I studied more, not only did I become convinced that it was human sacrifice, but I became so fascinated that I devoted years to studying it. So here, Kerry Mulstein is going to describe the fact that he single-handedly has reversed the entire Egyptological field on this issue, and that now all of his colleagues who used to believe there was no human sacrifice in ancient Egypt, now are getting on board with him, and he's leading the charge. He's leading the vanguard in this way in support of the book of Abraham. Now, back up a second. How does this support the book of Abraham? Well, it doesn't support the book of Abraham in a very strong manner, but this is why he is engaging in this research. The book of Abraham does depict the ancient Egyptians as practicing human sacrifice. That is clear. If they actually did engage in human sacrifice, well, that's not a huge evidence in support of the book of Abraham. Just because they engaged in human sacrifice doesn't somehow amount to a whole lot of weight for his argument that the book of Abraham is ancient and authentic. On the other hand, if the Egyptians did not practice human sacrifice, then that is a huge blow of evidence against the authenticity of the book of Abraham. Does that part make sense? Yes, sir. Okay, so he's going to go on now and he's going to say how he single-handedly has changed all this. During my research, I came to realize that the Egyptians often did engage in human sacrifice. As a result of my studies and those of others, the practice of human sacrifice in ancient Egypt is now generally accepted by my colleagues in Egyptology. Who, now, who are, the, I, so I know, I know where he's going because you and I have talked about it, but who are the others? Well, we who don't are know because he doesn't cite to them in his footnotes. He only cites to himself. We have top men working on it right now. Who? men. Yeah, I want to know what these others are saying, and if they're posing it the way he's... Like, like, again, this just gets... It gets frustrating when two guys standing in a room point at each other and say, yeah, these are the experts, and they just keep pointing back at each other. It doesn't make any sense. Well, I'm going to tell you what Kerry Mulstein doesn't want you to find out, which is what Robert Rittner says about the subject, okay? But before I do that, I want to go ahead and finish his argument about how great he is and how wonderfully he has changed the whole field 
of Egyptology in this regard. Him and those others, yes. Yes, those unnamed others. As I continued examining this phenomenon, by the way, these others is probably one other, and this one other's name is John Gee, when you get right down to it. As I continued examining this phenomenon, he goes on, I learned that the situation described in Abraham chapter 1 is exactly the kind of situation in which we would expect a human sacrifice to occur based on the Egyptian evidence. That is, those attempting to stop the practices of the Egyptian cultic system were sacrificed. Okay? And now he goes on to make the point, it became clear to me that the very thing that had bothered some people about the story of Abraham's near sacrifice was actually a point that supports the authenticity of that story. All we had to do was look at it more closely. And that's where he has footnote one. And if you go to footnote one, it cites to an article written by, ooh, Carrie Muelstein and John Gee in the Journal of the Book of Mormon and Other Restoration Scriptures from 2011. So that's where he cites to for this. Then he says, sadly, before we had come to understand that our earlier position on human sacrifice was wrong, some members of the church began to question their testimonies over this very issue. So the point he's going to make here is, even if the academic community of Egyptologists says things that are contradictory to the book of Abraham and that indicate that the book of Abraham is not authentic, we should not listen to them because that can be changed if we look at the evidence more carefully or if more evidence comes to light. Now, the problem is that he's playing a game here. And the game he is playing has to do with the definition of human sacrifice. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. So let's back up a second and talk about sacrifice. When you're talking about sacrifice to the gods or to God, whether it be by the Egyptians or by the Jews or any other group of people, there's only two reasons for sacrificing things to the gods. And that is to, number one, propitiate the gods, which means to try and get the gods to do something that you want the gods to do. All right, you want to have good weather, you want to have rain for your crops, you don't want to have a dry spell. Let's go ahead and let's have a sacrifice of some sort so we can get the gods to change things the way we want them. We're in the middle of a famine, we're going to start upping the sacrifices to get the gods to stop the famine. And then the other thing and reason for sacrifice is when the gods do something that you want them to do, you want to thank them. So you make a thank offering. The ancient Jews had a thank offering too. We read about it in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures where they would make thank offerings to God. And you make a thank offering to God when God has done something that is good. So you want to show your appreciation. And those are the two main kinds of sacrifices. What Carrie Muelstein and John Gee do, however, is they fudge on the definition of human sacrifice. And they try and make human sacrifice equivalent with capital punishment. Okay? Now, capital punishment is something that's very different. Capital punishment is a punishment that's meted out for a crime that's committed against the state. Right? That's what capital punishment is. It's not human sacrifice. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, propitiating the gods. But what it does have in common is that a person is killed. And here's what I want to say, all right? I've been quoting from the Enzyme article. Excuse me. I told you that he cites to his paper that he wrote with John Gee, which is called An Egyptian Context for the Sacrifice of Abraham. I printed it out. I read it. 
And here are a few things that I just want to point out from this article. I encourage you to go read it yourself. Okay? At the very beginning of the article, they start about definitions of human sacrifice. And you can see the fudging going on if you know to look for it. Here's where they start doing it. On the first page, we will define human sacrifice as the slaying of a person in a ritual context. So they're expanding their definition of human sacrifice in order to fit the evidence that there is in ancient Egypt of a slaying of a person in a ritual context. That's not what we think of when we think of human sacrifice, but they are going to fudge the definition so that it fits their argument. They go on on page two, whereas we make a distinction between execution and human sacrifice. So you see, they are dealing with this very difference that I've already talked to you about. They're dealing with it. Here's how they deal with it. Whereas we make a distinction between execution and human sacrifice, and by the way, when they say we, they're talking about we in the uh, 21st century. Whereas we in the 21st century make a distinction between execution and sacrifice, this point of view was not necessarily the case with ancient Egyptians. Okay, you see what they're doing there, Bill? They are lumping human sacrifice together with execution of people and saying we make a distinction between those two but it wasn't necessarily that way with the ancient Egyptians so we can look at examples of executing humans or executing humans capital punishment and we can say that's human sacrifice and therefore look at examples of executing people in ancient Egypt and call that proof of human sacrifice. That's the game they're playing there. Does that part make sense? Do you understand what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, it would be like a million years from now. Let's say, uh, let's say for whatever reason, an asteroid hits uh, the planet and we all die. And a million years from now, aliens come along uh, and they find that we had uh, put people in electric chairs. And, uh, they suddenly see this as weird and go like, wait a minute, I'm looking at newspaper reports and I'm seeing that they killed this guy with, uh, and they put him in an electric chair they zapped him, they killed him, that must be a human sacrifice. Well, that's not true. Like it's The person is punished for something they did wrong by the laws of the land, uh, by those who are in authority. That's a very different thing than taking somebody and killing them in order to appease the invisible gods that you're worshiping. Right. And their, their argument has to do with the fact that because ancient Egypt had a government that was very closely associated with the religion, right? There wasn't a separation between church and state in ancient Egypt. And therefore, they're going to leverage that into making slayings of human beings, executions, become human sacrifice. And they actually say that a little bit uh, further down in the article. All known cases of executions from ancient Egypt carry with them trappings of ritual and or religious actions. Okay? Consequently, our definition of human sacrifice accounts for this. How does it account for it? Well, by lumping them both together. Accounts for this by recognizing the ritual context of slaying, regardless of whether modern society would think of a given act as execution rather than human sacrifice. And they conclude this paragraph by saying, if ritual and religious aspects are present, which they've already said all of the executions in ancient Egypt, they're present, right? If ritual and religious aspects are present in the slaying of a person, then we will consider it human sacrifice. So that's what they've done. Now, this is if you actually go back and read the paper that he's citing 
as authority. The paper he even wrote for an academic journal, even though it's the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, there is peer review for that, and they have to toe the line to some degree with the evidence. So he is citing that paper in support of his claim that as I continued examining this phenomenon, this is back from his article, remember, uh, in the Enzyme. As I continued examining this phenomenon, I learned that the situation described in Abraham chapter 1 is exactly the kind of situation in which we would expect a human sacrifice to occur based on the Egyptian evidence. That is, those attempting to stop the practices of the Egyptian cultic system were sacrificed. That is absolutely not based on the Egyptian evidence. And let me go ahead and talk to you a little bit about what Robert Rittner says about this very issue in his response. So I think I've shown how they're using one voice to the scholars and one voice to the lay Mormons, one voice in scholarly publications and another voice to the readers of the Enzyme magazine. This is what Robert Rittner says. By the way, Robert Rittner would be presumably one of those people in the Egyptological community, the scholarly community, who has been persuaded by Kerry Muelstein that actually the Egyptians did practice human sacrifice. No, that's not the case. He says, wherever one locates Ur of the Chaldees, and that's a separate issue which we won't even go into because that'll unnecessarily complicate things. But he says, wherever one locates Ur of the Chaldees, human sacrifice dictated there by priests of Pharaoh is unbelievable to credible scholars of the ancient Near East. I'm going to repeat that again. Human sacrifice in Ur of the Chaldees, in other words, where the book of Abraham says that Abraham was attempted to be sacrificed. Human sacrifice dictated there by priests of Pharaoh is unbelievable to credible scholars of the ancient Near East. Now, when did Robert Rittner write this? Well, he wrote it as a response to the Abraham essay. The Abraham essay didn't come out till 2014. So he wrote this response after 2014. In other words, he wrote this response within the last five years. This is recent stuff. When Kerry Muelstein says that he's changing the whole landscape of Egyptology in this regard, he is not being truthful to his audience who are reading the Enzyme magazine. I want to read a little bit more from this Robert Rittner article because it's important that I cement the evidence that shows that Kerry Muelstein is being deceptive when he's addressing his Mormon audience. And he's saying different things than what he knows are correct or what he should know as an Egyptologist. This is from Robert Rittner's article, The Posting, and that's the essay. The Posting cites the work of Kerry Muelstein in footnote 36 in an attempt to prove that the religion-based human sacrifice at the order of Pharaoh, as described in Abraham, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, is an example, and now he's quoting from the article, is an example of punishment now known to have been meted out during the Abrahamic era. So notice that the essay says the exact same thing that Kerry Muelstein is saying in his Enzyme article. In his Enzyme article, he's saying this is the exact kind of situation we would expect a human sacrifice to occur, as described in the book of Abraham. The essay says that this is an example of punishment now known to have been meted out during the Abrahamic era. That's the quote from the essay from Robert Rittner. Now, Robert Rittner goes on to comment, whether or not Muelstein expected to find such proof when he began his doctoral study, comma, now that clause is pregnant with meaning because what he's suggesting is 
he thinks that Kerry Muelstein probably expected to find this proof. In other words, he set out to find this proof when he began his research in the area. And this was his doctoral study, which Robert Rittner has read, all right? His doctoral thesis, Kerry Muelstein's, had to do with the ritual killing of people in ancient Egypt. He says, Robert Rittner says, whether or not Muelstein expected to find such proof when he began his doctoral study, the title of the published volume, and this is important, the title of the published volume intentionally avoids the term human sacrifice in favor of sanctioned killing. So here's the two faces of Kerry Muelstein. When he's writing for his doctoral thesis, he knows he's going to have to hew to the evidence and not call it a sacrifice. So he doesn't call it a human sacrifice in his doctoral thesis. Instead, he calls it sanctioned killing because it's not human sacrifice, but it is sanctioned killing. However, when he writes for the Enzyme, he calls it human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Why are you asking me for? I don't know. Now, wait a minute. I'm, not I'm asking you who's on first. That's his name. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. That's it. This sentence goes on that the thesis, Muelstein's thesis, forthrightly concludes, quote, that rebellion was the chief motive, unquote, for such executions. So Kerry Muelstein, when he's being published for Egyptologists and his colleagues, the scholarly audience that he has to appeal to in that regard, he forthrightly concludes that rebellion was the chief motive for such executions. Okay? So he's being honest with them, but he's being dishonest in his Enzyme article, or at least he's changing the evidence, and he's arguing things that are not supported by the evidence. Perhaps that's a nicer way of saying the same thing when he's writing for the Mormons. Muelstein also rightly notes, this is Robert Rittner again, Muelstein also rightly notes the complexity in distinguishing the civil terms execution or capital punishment from the more overtly religious term human sacrifice, particularly in a society where political and religious issues are not sharply defined. But he goes on to say, more to the point, however, while Muelstein notes capital punishment for political rebellion and crimes against individuals and the state, that's what we would normally think about as capital punishment, right? That's what Muelstein is saying to his colleagues. While Muelstein notes capital punishment for political rebellion and crimes against individuals and the state, including theft of temple property or resources, there is no parallel. This is in italics, no parallel. There is no parallel to the book of Abraham's intended martyrdom for refusing to worship the images of Egyptian gods. He says that would happen under Roman persecution of Christians, but personal worship or its refusal was not a basic concern of the ancient Egyptian state. They didn't care what you worshipped or who you didn't worship, and it wasn't going to be punished by being sacrificed to the gods. So this has all been part of my attempt to show how it is that Kerry Muelstein presents one face in his doctoral thesis when it was published, talking about the execution of individuals in ancient Egypt as capital punishment, as sanctioned killing, but now that doesn't support the Book of Abraham enough. Now when he's talking to his Mormon audience in the Enzyme, he's specifically calling it human sacrifice. And Robert Rittner is calling him out on his duplicity. Your thoughts? 
Yeah, I I think that uh, the only way you get around this is maybe the uh, the adage we've heard over and over. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. We can't know what we can't know. We don't. We don't. We, here's the here's what the experts say. But here's these connections that are there, and and who are you to tell me that I'm wrong for going too far? But I think your point, uh, which I think is strong, is that when Kerry Molstein is talking to his colleagues, he acts professional and does things in a scholarly way, because it won't pass if he doesn't. And when he writes in the enzyme, he knows that he's talking to an ignorant audience, and so he can change the words, he can articulate it in a way that has a word meaning something different, and he just assumes nobody's going to catch on. Well, sorry, Carrie, you got caught. Exactly. And the deal is, is that when you're writing a master's thesis or a doctoral thesis or dissertation, you are writing it for people. It has to be approved by people who are smarter than you in your field, who know more than you. That's the whole point of it, of course. You have to present all the evidence. And if you miss some evidence, they're going to be saying, your board's going to be saying, well, you miss this evidence, you need to include that. You miss that evidence, you need to include that. And after including all the evidence, you have to draw reasonable and rational inferences and conclusions from that evidence. And if your reasons or conclusions are not rational and not supported by the evidence, then your board or your committee is going to be saying, that's not reasonable, that's not rational, go back to the drawing board, try again. So you've got one field there that you have to present in a certain way. But when it comes to the lay Mormon, you're writing an article for the Enzyme, you can say things that are different than what you would say to your colleagues. And you can get away with it in large measure because you're not going to be called on it because you are the Mormon Egyptologist. You know this stuff. So who is your reader, the widow from Parowan, to use Elder Holland's reference, right? The widow from Parowan who's reading this, she's having her faith built in the book of Abraham. And why would she think that the Egyptologist, Carrie Mulestein, is misrepresenting the evidence in order to build her faith? When, in fact, that is exactly what Carrie Mulestein is doing. Yeah, and I, I think you hit on something here that we've talked about, which is the recent conversation that Elder Holland gave at the Maxwell Institute what he said to do, he said, look, when you're called to, to choose between, and essentially, I, and I'll play the quote here so that people can hear it, but when you're called to choose between uh, the scholarship, which points to the church not being what it claims, and your faith, like choose your faith. No, as a crowd who invites others to study us, even as we study ourselves, and who speaks to the faithful every bit as much as to the detached, You'll have to be comfortable being oddballs in what you're going to speak to both groups. It will usually not be in the same documents, probably not with the same vocabulary, and seldom, I would guess, in the same venue. But both the believers and the merely curious need to be able to see you as a source for some of the answers to their questions however different that source material may be. And yes, if after such a balancing act, theological warfare still comes, you'll have to be willing to take sides. Um, and, and it's this idea that he's almost giving permission to withhold things, to, uh, to be deceptive, 
and it's the very game that Molstein and Gee are playing. In other words, they're following Elder Holland's game plan. Joseph Smith got these papyri, and he translated them. And subsequently, as the Egyptian, Egyptologists cracked the code, something completely different. All I'm saying, all I'm, all I'm saying is that what got translated, got translated into the Word of God. The vehicle for that, I do not understand and don't claim to know and know no Egyptian. They're doing exactly what Elder Holland wants the Maxwell Institute to do. They're being good little church boys uh, in carrying out what the church wants its scholars to do in portraying the evidence a certain way and ignoring the evidence that is too problematic. Right. And actually, Gee and Mulstein are poster boys for doing exactly what Elder Holland was advocating. And this is what happens, though. He talks about it in the abstract. But this is what happens when the rubber meets the road, when scholars actually do behave the way that Elder Holland wants them to behave, is they end up presenting one way in a scholarly way to their scholarly colleagues, but they end up presenting a different way to the Mormon audience. And it's not just a difference of dumbing it down for the lay audience. We all get that. That has to be done. But what they're doing is changing the evidence and actually speaking out of both sides of their mouth when they're saying one thing that comports with the evidence to their colleagues and saying another thing that does not comport with the evidence and even contradicts the evidence to the lay Mormon. And the only reason they do that is to build faith in the lay Mormon, and that is what Elder Holland was advocating. Yeah, he was telling the the Maxwell Institute uh, employees, and specifically the Maxwell Institute leadership, that when you're talking in front of the scholars, say one thing, and when you're talking to members of the church whose faith is fragile, say another. And that, to me, is dishonest. It's, it's, it's a form of lying. When you take information and portray it to somebody in a way so as to deceive them, you are being dishonest according to the Gospel Principles Manual. There are many other forms of lying. When we speak untruths, we are guilty of lying. We can also intentionally deceive others by a gesture or a look, by silence, or by telling only part of the truth. Whenever we lead people in any way to believe something that is not true, we are not being honest. Right. Exactly. I agree with you a million percent on that one. And I think that's one of the reasons it was so interesting that Elder Holland's address came out when it did. Because as I've been reading these articles that are written by Mulstein and Gee, I see what they're doing. All of a sudden, the pieces are coming into place for me. And I see what they're doing. And I see that they're doing exactly what it is that Holland wants them to do. And so as we play this out further and see what really happens, we find out that ultimately the colleagues of these two Egyptologist apologists find out what they're doing, and it doesn't bring them into greater repute with their colleagues. Instead, it brings them into disrepute with their colleagues. I want to read this final thing here. This is the last quote I think I'll be giving from the Robert Rittner article, where he talks in summary about the methodology that... Mulstein and Gee are using in order to support the Book of Abraham. And this has to do with the idea that one of the names of the canopic figures that's given in facsimile number one is Elkanah. You'll remember that. Now, Elkanah, some apologists have gone out there and tried to say, you know, if you look at Hebrew, that could be uh, like the god of Canaan, Elkanah, El Canaan. So this is the kind of games they play, right? Saying, 
even though this name, Elkina, is identified as one of these idolatrous gods in facsimile number one, the fact is that we know what the name of that idolatrous god was, and it was actually not Elkina, it was Kebesenuef. Gesundheit. And forgive me if I got that wrong, but I'm trying to pronounce it as best I can. It's Q-E-B-E-H-S-E-N-U-E-F is how it's transliterated into English. So here's what uh, Robert Rittner says about this attempt on the part of Book of Abraham apologetics to focus on issues that are not really the issue in order to try and claim a victory. Finally, he says, whether or not the idolatrous god Elkanah can be conflated with the known Canaanite god El, see the LDS posting, note 39, because that appears in the essay in footnote 39, it is absolutely impossible to identify that god with the Egyptian canopic jar deity Kebesen Uef, as Smith did in his explanation of facsimile 1 figure 5. Okay, so even though you might be able to try and rearrange the letters a bit and try and look at it with one eye squinted and the other eye closed and try and make it into something that might have existed anciently in a different culture than the Egyptians, it has nothing to do with the actual name of the god that's represented in facsimile 1. And he concludes by saying, far too often, and note this, Bill, far too often the LDS approach has been to find individual, minor, identifications or remote possibilities that cannot in some either explain or justify the book of Abraham. The new LDS citations of sources that are of minor relevance, misleading, or false does not advance the cause of the church and its disputed scripture. So notice what he says about the LDS essay and its sources, its apologetics, its attempt to find these connections to the ancient world. He says that they are of minor relevance, misleading, or false. That's what a renowned Egyptologist thinks about Book of Abraham apologetics, at least as it appears in the essay as represented by the writings of Kerry Muelstein and John Gee. Yeah, how Mormonism and its apologists support its truth claims is by looking for little tiny little specks of something that might be related, it might be connected, who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe this means that. Um, it's just, it's not the game that actual scientists play. It's not the game that actual uh, archaeologist or Egyptologist or uh, any of those kinds of scientific-based fields play. You, if you're going to make, if you're going to impose an idea as true, you have to have support for it, not the absence of evidence. Exactly. And now we get into the second thing, the second evidence. It's going to be our example number three, but it's the second evidence that Muelstein puts forth in his Enzyme article. It has to do with the use of names, or Abraham specifically, the name Abraham and stories about Abraham in ancient Egypt. But in order to lead into this, I have to do some background, okay? Let me read this very first part, all right? He says, there are many similar examples we could look at. In addition to his example about human sacrifice being practiced by the ancient Egyptians, which we found out is actually incorrect. He says, there are many similar examples we could look at. Let me mention just one more. Some have maintained that it is unrealistic to suppose that there were writings about Abraham in Egypt because the Egyptians 
knew nothing about him, period. Okay, so he's setting it up once again for him to show he's smarter than all the other Egyptologists put together. But there is no footnote for that comment. In other words, who are these people that he says some have maintained that it is unrealistic to suppose there were writings about Abraham in Egypt because the Egyptians knew nothing about him? Well, I found the source for that. Even though he doesn't put a footnote to it, and for good reason, because he doesn't want people to know what the source is, the source for that is an Egyptologist at UCLA named Kara Cooney. She's an Egyptologist, an archaeologist, an associate professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA, and the chair of the Department of Near Eastern Language and Cultures at UCLA. Now, she's significant for a number of reasons. First off, she's kind of prominent. She has a media presence as well, talking about things related to ancient Egypt. And she also is affiliated with UCLA, which is where Carrie Muelstein got his degree. Well, what happened is now, all of a sudden, the Mormons start talking with the Egyptologists. What is not supposed to happen, what Carrie Muelstein does not want to happen, what John Gee does not want to happen, is starting to happen, i.e., the audience of the Mormons that they're presenting one face to starts talking to the Egyptologists that they're presenting the other face to. Since I am not an Egyptologist, I decided to contact some professional Egyptologists, including three professors of Egyptology at UCLA, to see what they had to say. I told them about the claims of Professor Mulestein, gave them links to his first three videos, and asked them if he was accurate. Dr. Dileman responded and told me that while he did not have time to view Carrie's videos, he was familiar with the controversy. He said that I should consult Robert Rittner's book, The Joseph Smith Egyptian Papyri, and that he shared Dr. Rittner's views on the subject. Two other professors of Egyptology also recommended Rittner's book, citing him as an expert on the subject. While I don't have $90 to spend on that book right now, Rittner has appeared in a documentary about the Book of Abraham, where he shared his views. What this document really is, is an extended prayer on behalf of a deceased Egyptian priest, which begins with an invocation to the god of mummification, probably, certainly with a picture of the god of mummification, to ensure his continued existence, to ensure the priest's continued existence in the next world. And then it's followed up by a series of statements where, O deified Horus, may you walk as you had done on life, in life. May your ears function, may your eyes function, may the gods receive you. Long series of invocations on this, uh, essentially ensuring that this dead priest is able to function in death as he had in life, but now as part of a company of the ancient Egyptian gods. Abraham is not mentioned once. There's certainly no reason that this particular book of breathing scroll should be expanded much beyond the surviving length. I've now read the entire document from the beginning to the end and made out what one could make out on the poor copied, uh, copy of the final vignette. The most that is missing from this text is simply two columns worth of Egyptian hieratic and possibly a, vin a small vignette. But other than that, there would be nothing more that would inflate its length much beyond its current size. It is both unprecedented and unreasonable to assume that an intrusive text about a completely different matter, a narrative history of Abraham and his descendants, 
would have been inserted into a document whose beginning, middle, and end is devoted specifically to the resurrection of an Egyptian priest. It would disrupt the document. It would have nothing to do with its content. It would be unprecedented, and no other document would have such a thing. And the narrative style of the Book of Abraham does not correspond to Egyptian verbiage. It's not the kind of thing Egyptians would say. They wouldn't say it in that way. And it certainly would never appear in such a context as this. It couldn't possibly be more out of place. Explanations of each of the facsimiles accord with present understanding of Egyptian religious practices. I want to be absolutely clear on this. <laughs> um, there, there, there simply is no justification for the kind of interpretations that appear in facsimile 1 or facsimile 3. They are wrong with regard to the hieroglyphs. They are wrong with regard to the gender. They are regard, wrong with regard to the understanding of what the scene actually represents. And where they are used in the body of the text, they are wrong there as well. In short, there is no historical validity for the interpretations in that book. None whatsoever. Dr. Wendrich responded that the translation and interpretation of the Joseph Smith documents are religious rather than a scholarly endeavor. And as such, she respected them. I replied to the professor that while I appreciated her religious sensitivities, that Dr. Mulestein was claiming that the science of Egyptology was proving his religious conclusions and using his PhD from UCLA to give his claims validity. Dr. Wendrich wrote me back, apparently now having watched at least one of Carrie's videos, and told me I was right and that she would discuss the matter with Carrie. And what one Mormon did was he approached Kara Cooney in writing an email and asked her about the claims that her fellow Egyptologist from the same school, UCLA, Carrie Muelstein, was making on YouTube. And this is what she says. The last professor to respond to me was Professor Kara Cooney. I didn't realize this at the time, but she's kind of famous. She starred in her own Discovery Channel series called Out of Egypt, and she's been on the Craig Ferguson show a few times. Welcome, tall woman! Come, sit! She sent me the following email. I watched the three videos, and I don't agree with any of it. The ancient Egyptians had no concept of Abraham, so I don't know where he gets these comparisons. And no, most Egyptologists do not agree, despite what Kerry says. I know Kerry, but I do not have much respect for his work. Now I have even less. The fact that he is digging in Egypt is even more worrisome. His PhD was awarded before I arrived at UCLA, although I know that Kerry finished his text-based dissertation after only two years of Egyptian language training, which is rather laughable. Kerry is just spinning out the same Mormon rhetoric. What is different is Mormons are funding PhDs in Egyptology and Biblical Studies, and then funding positions at BYU and elsewhere and passing these people off as experts, when they are only ideologically driven researchers, not experts interested in actual evidence. Thanks for sending. It's important to know who these people are. I am very thankful to all three for taking the time to respond to me. I really appreciate it. But this is why peer view is so vital in science. It keeps us honest. It prevents us from making unjustified claims and falling prey to confirmation bias. It forces us to support and defend our position with reason and evidence. If we can do that convincingly, then our ideas gain acceptance. Carrie, I know where you're coming from. You want to promote the faith and help those who are struggling with this issue. But you are defending the indefensible, and this is forcing you to become dishonest. You and I are Mormons, and we have been taught that part of our core values are to act with integrity and be honest in our dealings with our fellow men. We're supposed to do what is right and let the consequences follow. I challenge you to be honest and courageous when addressing this issue, rather than to continue to violate our common core values. But here's what she says. Quote, 
I watched the three videos, and I don't agree with any of it. The ancient Egyptians had no concept of Abraham, so I don't know where he gets these comparisons. Okay, boom. Now, her email goes on, but notice what she just said. The ancient Egyptians had no concept of Abraham, so I don't know where he gets these comparisons. That is why Carrie Muelstein in the Enzyme article is saying, some have maintained that it is unrealistic to suppose that there were writings about Abraham in Egypt because the Egyptians knew nothing about him. Does that sound familiar? The ancient Egyptians had no concept of Abraham. That's what Karakuni, Egyptologist, wrote about Carrie Muelstein in her informal critique of his work. So when we pull back these layers, we find out that Karakuni has said this about Carrie Muelstein. Carrie Muelstein obviously found out that she said it. So instead of directly confronting her, he's going to write to his Mormon audience. He's going to refer to what she said without quoting her or citing to what it is exactly that she said in order to try and get back at her. So this is where elbows are getting thrown in this scholarly field. Now that Carrie Muelstein is getting called out by a real Egyptologist on what Carrie Muelstein is saying about the Book of Abraham to the Mormon audience, he's going to throw back indirectly mud back at Karakuni in a publication that's written only for a Mormon audience. Does that part make sense so far? Yeah, absolutely. She goes on in this uh, text message after saying, say, so I don't know where he gets these comparisons. And this is why, you know, Muelstein doesn't want anybody to know what else she has to say because it's not flattering to him. She says, and no, most Egyptologists do not agree despite what Kerry says. I know Kerry, but I do not have much respect for his work. Thank you, Greenwall. Thank you very much. I know Kerry, but I do not have much respect for his work. Now I have even less. Oh my gosh. The fact that he is digging in Egypt is even more worrisome. This PhD, Kerry Muelstein's PhD, this PhD was awarded before I arrived at UCLA. Boy, she's trying to distance herself from him. This PhD was awarded before I arrived at UCLA, although I know that Kerry finished his text-based dissertation after only two years of Egyptian language training, which is rather laughable. Unquote. Okay, so she is totally slamming Kerry Muelstein right and left. He is a laughingstock to his fellow Egyptologists, which is, by the way, why it is that there is a video out there, it's about 40 some odd minutes long, and it's presented by a, I don't know if it's Fair Mormon or another group that's trying to prove the Book of Abraham true, and it features Carrie Muelstein responding to a list of questions that are asked, like frequently asked questions, and one of those questions is, isn't it true that other Egyptologists have a hard time with you? And I think you have the audio for that too, and you'll be able to play that too. I, I know most of the Egyptologists in North America and a good share of them in Egypt and in Europe. I respect them and most of them respect me and uh, we get along just fine. I may think that uh, we're a little bit odd, but lots of people think that about Latter-day Saints anyway. There is a particular reason why some Egyptologists will get so bothered with Latter-day Saints and the Book of Abraham. You should know there's an anti religious stream in academia anyway, and there are lots of scholars who are trying to prove that the Bible is incorrect and that everything about it is wrong, and anything having to do with religion is incorrect and wrong. So you're going to encounter that anytime you are in academics and you're, you come from a religious point of view. That's to be expected. There's a particular issue that can be troublesome for Egyptologists, and that is that 
Joseph Smith was claiming to translate Egyptian characters and Egyptian language before the discipline of Egyptology could really do that. Champollion had cracked hieroglyphs, but they weren't really to the point where they could translate whole lines of text. Uh, and I would doubt that Joseph Smith even knew Champollion had, tra- had cracked hieroglyphs. There were all sorts of people who thought they'd figured out ways of reading hieroglyphs and, and uh, came up with all sorts of ideas of translation in the deep meanings and the mysteries that could come from translating these lines of Egyptian text. The key difference is that once we did figure out how to translate hieroglyphs, everyone stopped believing all those other people who had claimed to translate hieroglyphs but people still believe what Joseph Smith said he translated. He claimed to do it by divine inspiration, not by grammars, not by anything else, but by divine inspiration. And there are many of us who do still believe that he translated this correctly. And that can just bother a few Egyptologists who feel like he fits into the category with everyone else. And it doesn't make sense that he is still believed when everyone else is no longer believed because this was all pre Egyptology discipline, how could he have translated? And I find many of them start out with that assumption. When they see these things that that match up, where we've painted this case of plausibility, they have to say, well, it's a coincidence. Joseph Smith couldn't have gotten that right. He couldn't translate. You see the assumption that they're starting with. The assumption based on academic abilities being the only way to translate, and thus it says he could not translate, thus he is wrong, therefore anything that seems like it's right is coincidence. That's because they're not willing to allow for uh, an ability to translate based on revelation. That's their point of view. They're entitled to that point of view. I've had revelatory experiences that convince me it is possible. Now, basically, the only new principle involved is that instead of power being generated by the relative motion of conductors and fluxes, it's produced by the modial interaction of magneto-reluctance and capacitive directance. The original machine had a base plate of pre-famulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing in such a way that the two spurving bearings were in a direct line with a panometric fam. The lineup consisted simply of six hydrocoptic marzal veins, so fitted to the ambifacient lunar wane shaft that side fumbling was effectively prevented. But the hysterical thing is, why is it that they even think they need to ask that question? Well, because he knows that other Egyptologists have a problem with him, and he's concerned that the audience watching the YouTube video may know that other Egyptologists have a problem with him. So he gives some kind of lame answer, which is basically, I respect my colleagues, I I like to think they respect me, and they think that I'm kind of odd, but that's normal because everybody thinks that Mormons are odd. And by the way, basically all Egyptologists don't like me because I'm religious and I'm promoting a religious view and they're out there trying to knock down religion every chance they get. So that's really all he says without dealing in detail with anything that is actually said. Now, if we can get back to that part about the ancient Egyptians had no concept of Abraham, that's what she says. That's what she said. (laughs) And this is what he's referring to here. In his Enzyme article, some have maintained that it is unrealistic to suppose that there were writings about Abraham in Egypt because the Egyptians knew nothing about him. Then he says, we have now learned that a significant group of Egyptian priests were indeed collecting stories about Abraham, Moses, and other biblical figures. And then he gives a citation to two papers that he wrote in other journals, one of which is the religious and cultural background of Joseph Smith Papyrus 1, and another one called Abraham, Isaac, and Osiris 
Michael, the use of biblical figures in Egyptian religion, a survey. So what I can say about those two papers since I printed them out and read them, one was an actual paper written by Muelstein for a real gathering of Egyptologists back in 2009 in Moscow. And that's Moscow, Russia. So it was a... Um, a symposium apparently papers were presented then they were published a couple years later Muelstein's is one of those and when you start looking at the paper I'm not going to read this whole thing I marked it up and I put notes next to it but what he's trying to say in his Enzyme article what he actually says in the Enzyme article is that Kara Cooney's wrong because actually I wrote this paper that shows that a significant group of Egyptian priests were indeed collecting stories about Abraham Moses and other biblical figures the truth of it, if you actually read the article, is, yeah, you could say that's true. And I think that technically he is saying what's true. But the rest of the story is that these are not Egyptian priests from the time of Abraham. The first time that the name Abraham shows up is in the first century BCE. So before Christ, before the common era, BCE, this is 2,000 years after Abraham is supposed to have lived, that his name begins showing up in ancient Egyptian documents. And actually, they're not ancient Egyptian. Ancient Egyptian is 2000 BC. As Kerry Muelstein says, even in his article, this is in the twilight of the Egyptian empire. This is down, I mean, they're being taken over by Rome at this point for crying out loud. So what is going on here? Very interestingly to me, as I look at what Karakuni says, Karakuni is correct. The ancient Egyptians had no concept of Abraham. That's correct. That's correct. Even Mulesty knows that's correct. Because according to his own paper, the first mention of Abraham in an Egyptian papyri doesn't show up until the first century BCE. And then more in the first century CE, or after Christ, common era, first century common era. And then it really starts proliferating in the third and fourth centuries. So this is way after ancient Egypt. So Karakuni's correct. What Muelstein is doing is he is fudging on what it is she said so he can be right. So when he says, some have maintained that it is unrealistic to suppose there were writings about Abraham in Egypt, notice what he left out. He left out about Abraham in ancient Egypt, which is really what Karakuni said, and she's correct, because the Egyptians knew nothing about him. Well, the other side of this, in this paper, which you'll find out, is that these ancient Egyptian priests, they're not ancient once again, these are in first century CE and thereafter. They're interested in the name of Abraham, but only and primarily for, only may be too strong, but I think primarily for these kind of magical incantations that are represented in the Leiden Papyrus. In other words, the name Abraham, they believe, has magical properties, which they're going to use in magical potions. Oh, he even admits that much in his paper, the one that's published for the Russian Academy of Sciences and the Center for Egyptological Studies from 2009. He actually admits that. What he says is, the most common type of texts which use biblical figures include, now listen to these, they're all magic, love charms, medical rituals such as salves for fevers or expulsion of poison, invocations to various deities including Egyptian deities, rites for driving away inimical forces such as demons, amulets for success, charms for ensuring victory, charms for receiving favorable luck, rituals designed to bring supernatural figures and aids, rituals for helping to manage a spouse, Charms for becoming invisible. 
Nothing magical about that, by the way. Rituals designed to summon specific deities, spells for catching thieves, divination, help with childbearing, rituals for prophecy or foreknowledge, charms for restraining anger, and even initiation rituals. Okay? So he goes all the way through all of that. By the way, he wants to put initiation rituals at the end, and I think we know why he wants to do that. But the usage of the name Abraham, even though it's way after ancient Egypt, is the most commonly, as he says, for magical purposes. Now, once again, in this paper, what he's going to do is he's going to do the same thing that he does with that he does with human sacrifice, right? What he does is he takes a practice which was execution or capital punishment of people, and then he defines human sacrifice broadly enough to incorporate the capital punishment into his thesis so he can then use it in an Enzyme article to support the Book of Abraham and say, hey, they practice human sacrifice in Egypt. What he's doing with this is he's saying, well, this is all magical usages of the name Abraham, which happened way after ancient Egypt was in full swing and in the twilight of the Egyptian empire. But what he says in the paper is, hey, you know, it's really hard to tell the difference between magic and religion, and one person's magic is another person's religion. So we're going to say that even though these are what we would look at today as magical uses of the name Abraham, that it also qualifies as a religious usage of the name Abraham. So once again, he's doing the same thing. He's expanding magic to be so broad enough that it can take in religion because he wants to be able to say, as he does in the Ensign article, which once again I'm turning to, we have now learned that a significant group of Egyptian priests were indeed collecting stories about Abraham, Moses, and other biblical figures with the idea in mind that they are collecting stories. And so one of these stories that they might collect would be about, wow, geez, about Abraham trying to be sacrificed in ancient Egypt, just like we have in the book of Abraham. And even though we have no record of that story anywhere else, they were collecting stories about Abraham. Therefore, this could be one of the stories which then could have been put on a papyri, which then could have ended up in Joseph Smith's hands, which Joseph Smith then could have translated and given us the book of Abraham, even though we don't have that papyri anymore. We have no proof that it ever existed. We have no proof that Joseph Smith ever had it. All we have is the book of Abraham and Carrie Muelstein's insistent drive to prove the book of Abraham authentic at all costs. Did that much make sense? Yeah, everything is possible and you can't prove me wrong. So therefore I can spout it out as if it's a tenable theory. Right. The other thing I have to say about this is it's, it's even weaker than that. Because it's not just Abraham and Moses and other biblical figures that the Egyptian priests or that these papyri from the twilight era of the Egyptian empire show. They're interested in everybody. As I said, the Egyptians are very, very universalistic. They're very accommodating to all other kinds of religions and cultures. And they want to use those names to give additional power and incorporate them into their own culture, into their own magical practices. And once again, Kerry Muelstein admits this in his paper, which he writes and publishes with his colleagues. He says, moreover, while figures, in other words, literary or cultural figures, while figures from a variety of cultures were employed. Wait a second. Okay, it's not just the Hebrew figures, Kerry Muelstein. It's not just Abraham, it's not just Moses, it's not just other biblical figures. It's figures from a variety of cultures were employed. Yes, he admits that in the paper. 
figures from a variety of cultures were employed. He says the majority of figures are, are they Hebrew? Because that's what you sort of led us to expect from your Ensign article, Carrie Mulstein. No, the majority of figures are Egyptian. Big surprise. They're Egyptian papyri. The majority of figures employed are Egyptian. Then he says, suggesting an Egyptian backbone to the textual history of the manuscripts under study. And then he says, Canaanite, Mesopotamian, Israelite. Okay, Israelite. That's the one he wants to focus on. But he has to acknowledge the fact that there are figures from a variety of cultures. Canaanite, Mesopotamian, Israelite, Greek, and Egyptian deities and figures are all used. And then he says, the latter three represent the lion's share of uses. So that's Israelite, Greek, and Egyptian. Some texts are primarily Greek figures and others primarily Israelite. However, Egyptian figures make up the core of the text. They are prominently Egyptian. So what he's doing is he's talking about a very small subset of these figures, which have to do with Israelite figures, and a smaller subset of those, which have to do with Abraham and Moses, which among the Israelite figures appear to be the ones that are most predominantly represented within this small subset. Now, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of other detail about this. I could, and I could go on way too long, and I probably already have, but I'm trying to establish that even this next evidence that Kerry Muelstein is putting forward in his Enzyme article is completely misrepresenting the evidence. Let me give you an example. The Egyptians are collecting stories from every culture they possibly can and names and figures from every culture they possibly can. One of those cultures happens to be Israelite, so Abraham happens to be among them. Okay, so what Kerry now is trying to say in his Enzyme article is that they are uniquely interested in Abraham and Moses. He doesn't actually say that, so he doesn't actually lie, but hear how he says it once again. Quote, we have now learned that a significant group of Egyptian priests were indeed collecting stories about Abraham, Moses, and other biblical figures, period, end of quote. The implication that he wants the reader to take from that is that they are uniquely or singularly interested in collecting these stories about Abraham, especially Moses and other biblical figures. Let me give you an example. In our libraries today in the Western world, we have libraries that collect books on a variety of different subjects. Tons of different subjects. The idea is to get as many different books in there as possible. Uh, If you were at the New York Metropolitan Library and you went in there, you'd find stories about Harry Potter. You'd find Stephen King stories. You'd find uh, current history. I mean, you'd find every single possible book that you can possibly imagine. But among those, there would be a section which would have stories about Abraham, which would include a copy or more than one copy of the Hebrew Scriptures or the Bible itself, plus scholarly research done on those subjects. Now, if I were to come to you, Bill, and I were to say that the librarian at the New York Metropolitan Library was indeed collecting stories about Abraham, Moses, and other biblical figures, period, end of quote, that would be technically correct, but it doesn't tell you the whole story. You see what I mean? Yeah, that's what apologists do is never tell you the full story. Right. And when you find out that they're collecting stories about Abraham, yeah, but about everybody else in the entire world, it takes away a lot of the evidentiary value of them collecting stories about Abraham. Yeah, they're collecting stories on everything. They are trying to create a national library, essentially. Exactly. So this is once again him being two-faced when in the paper, okay, in the paper that he wrote for his colleagues in which he admits all of this stuff and really that the name Abraham is not that unique amongst the Egyptians, and it's much later, it's not ancient Egypt, and even among the different 
Israelite names. Abraham is only one of many, and he lists them all for crying out loud. It goes on and on and on. Abraham's just one of them. It is not unique, but he's trying to leverage it in his Enzyme article to a position of uniqueness amongst the Egyptians, which it does not have, and which he has to admit to his scholarly brothers and sisters. Yeah, and and so obviously they're playing right at, you know, you have John Gee's audio about landmines and hand grenades. Defending the faith is a lot like having a job defusing landmines. <laughs> the job is to protect others, but one never knows if a new bomb is instead going to blow up on the one trying to defuse it. Unfortunately, I know a number of casualties. From this perspective, those who think that participating in academia gives one a license to experience with any and all pyrotechnics are dangerous to themselves and to others. Continuing the metaphor, much as we might marvel at an individual's abilities of seeing how many lithe hand grenades he can juggle, doing so is irresponsibly is irresponsible. And the juggler almost never takes responsibility when the grenades start flying off and going off in the audience. Some even appear to enjoy the resulting chaos and carnage. If that metaphor seems a little extreme, considering the following statement by Elder Boyd K. Packer, quote, one who chooses to follow the tenets of his profession, regardless of how they may injure the church or destroy the faith of those not ready for advanced history, is himself in spiritual jeopardy. If that one is a member of the church, he has broken his covenants and will be accountable. And I want to say in all seriousness that there is a limit to the patience of the Lord with respect to those who are under covenant to bless and protect his church and kingdom upon the earth, but do not do it. Or consider the more recent counsel of Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. Quote, to lead a child or anyone else, even inadvertently away from faithfulness, away from loyalty and bedrock belief, simply because we want to be clever or independent is license no parent nor any other person has ever been given. In matters of religion, a skeptical mind is not a higher manifestation of virtue than is a believing heart, and analytical deconstruction in the field of, say, literary fiction can be just plain old-fashioned destruction when transferred to families yearning for faith at home, and such a deviation from the true course can be deceptively slow and subtle in its impact. You have Elder Holland saying you talk to one audience one way, you talk to another audience another way, and if your scholarship is going to hurt the faith, then essentially I'm giving you permission to withhold the scholarship, and we won't come back in five years and have anything nasty to say about you. Um, When you see the games that are being played, it's one thing to defend your belief and to lay out the data and say, look, the critic's just going too far. The reality is here, this is bad apologetics. This is deceiving. This is dishonest. This is shading things a certain way. This is pretending um, that you are unaware of more information because you choose not to share it. And it's also playing on the fact that the audience, again, is not informed. So when he's talking in the Enzyme, 
he knows his audience doesn't know the different time periods in Egypt's history. He he knows that certain things come into play early, certain things come into play late, and he plays off of the fact that his audience doesn't know that so as to convey to them that, hey, Egyptians used to do this thing, and so it fits. Ignoring the fact that, for instance, Abraham is written in Greek way late on that Leiden papyrus. Ignoring the fact that some of these things don't show up until Egypt's late history and are not part of the ancient Egyptians that are being spoken of by the experts, the actual Egyptologists doing actual Egyptology. Right. It is misrepresentation after misrepresentation. And this is what leads to Karakuni's assessment of what BYU is doing and what the Mormon Church is doing relating to the book of Abraham. What she says is this, Carrie is just spinning out the same Mormon rhetoric. What is different is Mormons are funding PhDs in Egyptology and biblical studies and then funding positions at BYU and elsewhere and passing these people off as experts when they are only ideologically driven researchers, not experts interested in actual evidence. So that's her damning assessment of Muelstein as well as Gee. And I think that there's probably some truth. I can't vouch that it's everything that is in that one quote is actually true, that Mormons are funding PhDs in Egyptology. But it does seem that whether the Mormon church is behind this in any way or not, Carrie Muelstein and John Gee have taken it upon themselves to study Egyptology with the avowed purpose of defending and supporting the book of Abraham. And as Kerry Muelstein has admitted publicly, he looks at all Egyptological evidence in terms of how it can support the book of Abraham. What he says is he takes the book of Abraham as true, and then he interprets all the evidence from his field of Egyptology in light of that in order to support it. And he's actually admitted that much on the record, which is kind of remarkable that he admitted what it's so obvious that he's doing Anyway, so there's that one quote. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about Robert Rittner and John Gee in closing. Robert Rittner is an assistant professor of Egyptology in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Yale University. Yale University is where John Gee got his uh, doctorate in Egyptology. And Robert Rittner was his professor, also his mentor which means something, as we'll get to here in a second. And Robert Rittner is the current professor of Egyptology in the Oriental Institute. That's a huge deal. The Oriental Institute, the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, the University of Chicago. Okay, This is what Robert Rittner had to say about John Gee. With regard to the articles by my former student, John Gee, I am constrained to note that unlike the practice of all my other Egyptology students, Gee never chose to share drafts of his publications with me to elicit scholarly criticism, so that I have encountered these only recently. Now, let's back up there a second, okay? Robert Rittner is John Gee's mentor and professor. John Gee is the student. Robert Rittner is the professor. And John Gee unlike Robert Rittner's other students, has chosen never to submit anything to Robert Rittner, his mentor, for review prior to publishing it. 
all of his other students, all of Rittner's other students do this. This is a matter of common courtesy. I mean, wouldn't you do that with your mentor in Egyptology? If you're publishing something, here's the rough draft. Hey, would you mind taking a look at this since you're my mentor and my professor? Because everything I do is going to reflect in some way on you since you're my professor and mentor. And you can give me tips. You can give me heads up. Did I miss something? Do I have something wrong? Do you have any additions, deletions, corrections, right? It's a huge resource. John Gee never does that with Robert Rittner. We could ask the question, why doesn't he? And I think the answer is pretty obvious because he knows that Robert Rittner is not going to agree with his pro-Book of Abraham conclusions. Did you have something you wanted to say there, Bill? Just that he obviously avoids it. Obviously, to some level, if I know that the expert who's uh, trained me is completely at odds with everything that I'm pretending to draw connections to, then sure, by all means, why would I send it on to him? I'm just, I'm just asking for trouble. And you get that from John Gee at the end of this Fair Mormon conference, where he's asked uh, if he's going to respond to Robert Rittner. So he's being asked in Fair Mormon, uh, their conference, their annual conference, by a person who's attending, uh, whether he's going to respond to Robert Rittner's criticism. And I find John Gee's uh, answer to be incredibly telling, and we'll play it here for the audience. So this question, do you or one of your colleagues plan on responding to Robert Rittner's review of the Gospel Topics essay? I can't speak for my colleagues. I don't really have any intention of doing that. Um, I don't know. Is does a, a non-Catholic scholar really feel it in his purview to criticize a papal bull um, or something like that? I just, I think Professor Rittner was out of line, um, and why does he care? Um, but I don't really have any intent on responding because I thought his review was besides being in poor taste, rather weak. Um, or you can, if you want to, I guess we, you could suppose my book is a response, but that wasn't why it was written. Um, you know, that, um, but I don't have any plans on, on doing that formally. Um, um, because as far as I can tell, who cares? Um, he, he seems to be saying, look, I don't see any reason to respond to Robert Rittner. He really has no business delving into these issues of Mormonism. He uses an example of Catholicism. Uh, it just seems like Guy is saying, look, I have the right inside Mormonism to say nonsense without being criticized by any Egyptologist outside Mormonism, because that's not their purview. They need to stay out. They need to mind their own business. And so I'm not going to respond to Rittner. I'm not going to uh, deal with what he said, because he just had no business being in this arena. Exactly. And I think, though, that this is why, I mean, so many people have wondered, why is it that Robert Rittner is so invested in this idea that he's going to take time off his, of his legitimate Egyptological pursuits, which I'm sure keep him very, very busy, and spend his time and effort focusing on a response about the Book of Abraham essay, right, on the church's website? And why is it that he has done other writings, which are responses to this very issue. Why is he spending his time dealing with the book of Abraham? And I think that the reason behind it 
is probably because it's his own student, John Gee, who is promoting this kind of apologetic argument in favor of the book of Abraham. He sees that as a personal reflection on himself, and I think he feels at some level that it is his duty to correct the record. So I wanted to finish also with this statement from this email opinion from Robert Rittner. I've read the first part about Guy never chose to share drafts of his publications with me to elicit scholarly criticism so that I have encountered these only recently. I didn't know about them until they got published and I didn't know about the publication until somebody brought them to my attention, right? Then he says this about John Guy. It must be understood that in these apologetic writings, i.e. in support of the book of Abraham, it must be understood that in these apologetic writings, Guy's opinions do not necessarily reflect my own, nor the standards of Egyptological proof that I required at Yale or Chicago, period, end of quote. Huge slam on John Gee and telling us what Robert Rittner, his professor and mentor, thinks about his apologetic writings. Yeah, if you were Robert Rittner, would you want John Gee telling anybody where he got his education and who he, uh, who he was an understudy of? No, heavens no. He's an embarrassment. He is a reflection. It's like they say, we you know, a kid grows up and misbehaves or they're a teenager and they misbehave. It's a reflection on your parents. Well, John Gee is a reflection on Robert Rittner. And Robert Rittner, I think, feels duty bound to correct the record and show why it is that John Gee's methodology in his apologetic writings do not necessarily reflect his own views or the standards of Egyptological proof that I required at Yale or Chicago. Yeah, these two men are an embarrassment to Egyptology and to other Egyptologists to the point where now we have Brian Haglid saying that their apologetics are abhorrent. And he uses that word intentionally and he puts it in quotation marks. So you know how strongly now we have those who are working with the documents inside Mormonism on the book of Abraham. What they are now coming to the realization of is that what Carrie Molstein and John Gee, the perspectives they are trying to hold up as tenable, are ridiculous. And these two men have zero credibility, both with real LDS historians dealing with these documents, as well as all to a, to a certain extent, all non-Mormon Egyptologists who stick their nose in, according to John Gee and, and Kerry Molstein unnecessarily, but who have an interest in the book of Abraham for one reason or another. And so I wanted to conclude here by sharing a soundbite from Robin Scott Jensen, who worked on the Joseph Smith Papers project with Brian Haglid uh, on the book of Abraham. Because now we have to ask, as we've gone through three episodes now, laid out all the data what does this mean? Um, so, where does this leave us? These are some implications that we need to talk through. Um, this is not something to sweep under the rug. This is not something to say, oh, you have questions about the book of Abraham. Are you praying hard enough? Um, the book of Abraham is an important aspect of Joseph Smith's translation. As a historian... I can confidently tell you that history is not going to solve truth claims. History will not tell you that Joseph Smith was a fraud. 
history will not tell you that Joseph Smith was a prophet. That's not what history is designed to do. Um, The Holy Ghost does not leave a textual trail. Miracles do not leave a documentary record. Um, These are truth claims that need to be done through study and prayer. But again, don't ignore some of the issues. Um, Just because history won't prove truth claims does not mean that you shouldn't study history. I should make that very clear as a historian. Thank you for that concluding statement. I think that covers it really, really well. In concluding, however, I mentioned Egyptologist apologist because I think that sounds kind of cool and it rhymes. It reminds me of a song from the Muppets, technically from Kermit the Frog, called Caribbean Amphibian. So I hear Egyptologist apologist to the tune of Caribbean Amphibian. And Kermit sings about Caribbean Amphibian. He hops all day in the tropical sea. Caribbean Amphibian. A frog in a coconut tree. And then I hear Egyptologist Apologist. He hops all day in the tropical sea. Egyptologist Apologist. A guy with a long papyri. And those last words were a guy with a long papyri. That's an inside joke, slightly bawdy. But hopefully we can close out with Kermit singing that song. And when he's singing Caribbean Amphibian, you know what I'm going to be thinking instead. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon. And Bill Real Signing off the air. I know a tropical island with a mango moon and banana sunshine. And on this tropical island, there lives a cousin of mine. Sometimes he lives in the water, sometimes he lives on the land. Sometimes he likes to go sun himself on soft Caribbean sand. Egyptologist, apologist. He likes to hop in the tropical sea. Egyptologist, apologist. A frog in the coconut tree. The flying fish and the turtles, they've seen him hop where the pineapples grow. He likes to see all the islands, so island hopping he goes. Sometimes he hops to Jamaica, sometimes to Haiti he hops. Sometimes a warm Puerto Rico beach is where he finally stops. Egyptologist, apologist. He likes to hop in the tropical sea. Egyptologist, apologist, a frog in the coconut tree. Sometimes he lives in the water, sometimes he lives on the land. Sometimes he likes to play music with an old amphibian band. He's a Egyptologist, apologist, he hops all day in the tropical sea. Egyptologist, apologist, a guy with a long papyri. Caribbean amphibian, he likes to hop in the tropical sea. Caribbean amphibian, a frog in a coconut tree, a frog in a coconut tree. <laughs>